If you go and see an Argentine tango orchestra, there's a good chance that one or more musicians on stage will be playing an instrument called a bandoneon. It may look like a concertina, or maybe a small accordion, but it's not. The bandoneon is its own whole thing, and it's not easy to play. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about music played on accordion, music played on concertina, and on today's episode, music played on the bandoneon. Those synthesizers mean it's time for me to tell you that Strong Songs is entirely listener-supported. There are links for PayPal, Patreon, and more down in the show notes. Each person who signs up really does make a difference. So, if you like this show, I hope you'll consider chipping in, becoming a patron, and helping me keep this thing going. I'm so excited for today's episode. It's one that I've wanted to make for a long time. We're going to be exploring the tango, one of the most exciting and interesting musical styles out there. And true to tango music and tango dance, I'm not going to do it alone. So let's put on our stilettos, find ourselves a partner, and hit the floor. never forget the moment when I first registered tango as a style of music, a style of dance that I might be interested in. It was 1994, I was 14 years old, and I was in the movie theater watching Arnold Schwarzenegger do his best James Bond parody in James Cameron's action comedy True Lies. So Schwarzenegger's spy hero is undercover at a diplomatic function near the beginning of the movie and he finds himself face to face with Tia Carrera's beautiful, dangerous arms dealer. The two characters meet, they exchange some witty, flirty banter, and before long, he takes her hand and leads her onto the dance floor, and as the two begin to circle one another, the orchestra strikes up this beautiful, intoxicating piece of music. dance sequence is great, the stars are very charismatic, and it's a plenty enjoyable movie, but for me in that moment, all of that receded into the background, and all I could focus on was that music. I didn't know the name of the piece, Tango por una cabeza, nor did I know its composer, famed tango musician Carlos Gardel. All I knew was that the violin was doing its own dance with the accordion, that the piano player's left hand was pushing them both forward, that the ensemble's performance was mixed with the film's editing and the actor's movements to create a heady blend like I'd never seen or heard before. This was my introduction to tango, and I was in love. So over the course of my music career, I was always kind of adjacent to tango in San Francisco, the fantastic tango scene there. Then up in Portland, there's a lot of tango music here in Portland as well. But, you know, I play saxophone. There's not really a saxophone in any tango bands. So I didn't play the music. 
So I was familiar enough with tango music and knew enough musicians who played that style of music that I knew that I wasn't really capable of teaching anyone anything about it, despite the fact that I've been enchanted by the music for pretty much my entire adult life. And I knew I wanted to make an episode of Strong Songs talking about tango music, but the question was, well, who am I going to go talk to to help me do that? And then I realized the answer was obvious. My friend Andrew Oliver, a Portland-based pianist who I've mostly talked with about 20s jazz and think of as a jazz pianist, is actually a fantastic tango pianist and actually plays with one of the hottest tango orchestras in town. And his band leader, Alex Krebs, well, he's one of the foremost tango experts in the US. He leads an orchestra in which he plays the bandoneon, he teaches tango classes all around the country and the world, and he runs the tango studio, Tango Baratine, here in Portland. A couple of emails later, Andrew and Alex had both agreed to sit down and talk with me about the tango. You're actually hearing Andrew on piano and Alex on the bandoneon playing Andrew's arrangement of Note a Piaras Carabranca by famed composer Roberto Garza. So I'm very excited for you all to listen to this conversation. A couple of notes as we get started. Andrew and Alex kind of sound similar. They have similar sounding voices. I've panned Andrew a little bit over to the right and Alex a bit over to the left. And you'll hear from Alex first. So Alex is the bandoneon player and the band leader. And Andrew, who's over on the right, is the pianist and the arranger. We met on the main floor at Tango Baratine down on Foster in Portland, and we just kind of talked there. So you'll hear a little bit of traffic in the background from time to time. I did my best to kind of edit it out. But, you know, you can only do so much when someone's driving a motorcycle 50 feet away from you. Andrew was sitting at the piano, and Alex had brought his bandoneon, so they actually demonstrated some of the music while we were in the studio, which was pretty cool. But I also might interject from time to time in this episode just to flesh things out or offer a little bit of extra context or musical explanation. All right, let's get into it with Alex Krebs and Andrew Oliver. Alex Krebs and Andrew Oliver, welcome to Strong Sons. Thanks for having us. Of course, I'm I'm really happy to be doing this. I'm going to learn, I feel like I'm going to learn a lot about tango. Let's start with you, Alex. So tell me more about your background as a tango musician. You've been been doing this for a very long time. Yeah, so I... um... I first heard Carlos Gardel actually on NPR. Carlos Gardel is a really famous tango uh, singer, guitarist, and also sometimes actor. Uh, <laughs> and that was really popular in the 1920s. Not music for dancing per se, but I heard it on the radio and I remember I was cooking at the time, I think I was 18, and just kind of fell in love, bought a cassette tape and just listened to Gardel, Gardel. I didn't know about the dance or anything. And then I, when I was at Reed College, I took a uh, ballroom dance class and enjoyed ballroom tango and then went and found Argentine tango and found other music that was Argentine tango, fell in love with Piazzolla, the music of Astor Piazzolla, and also of Osvaldo Pugliese. And then I went to Buenos Aires the first time for three months, danced 10 hours a day, came back. People said, oh, you teach. So I started teaching. Again, I was still, you know, undergrad at Reed. 
the time, 2001, someone loaned me their bandoneon, and I, I took to that, started playing it, formed a group. We played in the style what's called a la Parisia, which is just like off a lead sheet, not from arrangements, but just like the chord changes and the simple melody. And I think there were five or six of us in the group at that time. And then I wanted to head more towards arrangements, more play in the style of sort of the classic orchestras from the 30s and 40s. Um, and make the band a little larger. And, and when that happens, you kind of got to go to arrangements in a way. You can't really, you can't have a jam session with six musicians, at least in tango. It's just the fewer the musicians, uh, like if you're a duo or trio, I feel like it works if you have a good chemistry. But really more than three or four in my experience, it ends up just being everyone kind of stepping on each other's toes. And it's, it's fun and energetic, but it's also kind of chaotic and not very clean. And I wanted to head more in that that direction you guys have been playing tango together for many years now what's the what's that what's that project like what's your your collaboration like oh man yeah it's been a long time i think um it started out because i was playing trumpet actually in alex's brass band the krebsich orchestra we played raucous balkan music and uh uh, you know, Alex knew that I was a pianist and was interested in getting some arrangements done for the tango band that he mm -hmm. had at the time, Conjunto Baratin. And so I, you know, I was like, okay, sure, you know, I need some work. I can try to transcribe these old recordings. I was already used to transcribing old recordings from playing old jazz anyway. So, um, yeah, I started out doing the arrangements and then uh, we kind of started, uh, he, you know, doing some gigs and... Uh, that was kind of how I got into this whole thing myself. So, I mean, Alex has been playing tango music for a long time. Um, but we, we wanted to form a band that was dedicated to dancing specifically. And as I'm sure we'll get into, there's been a, an interesting history of tango um, that kind of moved from dance music into being concert music over the cent you know, the 20th century, basically. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, the... Uh, what happens here at Tango Bertine and Alex's whole sort of philosophy is, you know, to create music that's, uh, that people want to dance to. And most people nowadays still dance to, you know, music from the 1940s, 30s, 30s and 40s, the golden age of tango, um, and either recordings from that era or, you know, people playing that same repertoire. Um, so we were interested in trying to see if we could create some new music in that style for dancing. That wasn't sort of the way that modern concert tango music is, but that was more, you know, rooted in those styles. Um, so that was the initial project. Um, we wrote, I don't know, 25 or 30 different songs, and we used to play every month at the Milonga, the, the social dance here, and, you know, get solicit feedback from the dancers, and people would, uh, would have all sorts of opinions about what we were doing. And I think for me, just uh, finding Andrew um, was sort of the perfect fit for the tango band, because I'm sure, as some people know, if you've formed a band before, there are a lot of variables that go into having good <laughs> bandmates and and one of that is just being technically capable uh, being able to really fall in love with the genre of music that you're playing so you're not just playing the gig and then getting paid and going home um, and then also the chemistry that just on a personal level you you get along with each other but 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 the personality of the player also works with what the goal of the group is trying to head towards and so Andrew was kind of a perfect fit coming from the jazz back at first he was transcribing some of the songs for the group and I think he thought he had to play it you know perfectly every note with the <laughs> sure, dynamics sure. and once I told him like hey treat this more like a, a jazz chart you know <laughs> yeah. just make it sound good musically uh he he blossomed really quickly and he really um 
you know, outside of the stuff that I was having him do in terms of the transcriptions and arrangements and playing, he would send me stuff like, hey, check this out. This is cool. So it was like there was an interest beyond the gig. Uh, and then, you know, writing and arranging together. It was just a great dynamic, you know, me having sort of the experience in sort of the Argentine tango world and his, his you know, depth of knowledge and in jazz and harmony and, and form and all that made it made a sort of really nice collaboration uh, to work together and compose and arrange and 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 to play and and when we play we kind of have that chemistry like a good dance chemistry when you're leading and following an argentine tango it just kind of works when we play stuff off lead sheets we there's an understanding of of what's going on we listen to each other there's a good, there's a good chemistry um you know there's a good vibe. We we get along real mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in that dynamic in the the improvisational interactions between band members because just as a jazz musician who's played a little bit of tango but I don't really understand the dynamics of the ensemble. That seems interesting. How what's the what's the overlap there I suppose between jazz and tango and that concept that ensemble concept. Well, well, I, th- I think the one of the main differences is that um jazz and and jazz and tango share sort of similar histories in, in a right. way um, but jazz really went in the direction of improvisation and I think Argentine tango really went in the direction of interpretation so there are for example there are no open solos in tango music right. or, or, or solos at all really yeah I mean you, 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 somebody you, would play the melody but but wouldn't necessarily play on the chord changes of the melody like you would right. in jazz you know and, and, and ignore the melody and just play on changes that that doesn't really happen right you can em- embellish the melody you can add ornamentation or use some rubato and stuff like that to you know and the orchestras would do that too they might play this rhythm a little louder a little softer but but you stick to the melody and the chord changes on the form basically so there's a big difference there but that interpretation part of it that's what really gives it the character and and if and if your style of playing is is elegant the other musicians you hire need to be elegant musicians in the way they play and if and if you're a little more street in your vibe you got to hire musicians that that already play with that street vibe because a lot of that you just can't really teach or force someone to do right. And I think yeah. also like um, what was interesting coming from jazz is that at first I started to think, oh, are we going to have a solo here and there? You know, like right, we sort right. of, and, and we tried it out and it sounded really weird. You know, and, <laughs> um, but I think also the the range of interpretation of the melody in tango is much greater as a result of the fact that there aren't so much improvised solos. So people will take enormous liberties with the melody as far as how much they can stretch it, register, uh, articulation. The phrasing is like really extreme, mm-hmm. you know, especially for vocalists. Like many great tango vocalists will be, you know, one or two bars off like <laughs> Billie Holiday kind of, you know, and then yeah. come back on at the right moment and uh, in time and, and things like that. So, so that's where the the individuality comes in and it's much more extreme than the way you would interpret a melody in jazz, I think. Yeah, I noticed just in the, my listening I've been doing, uh, getting ready to talk to the two of you, violin solos as well. There's quite a few mm-hmm. just really stretchy, really yeah. dramatic soloists who, they're not improvising, they're not playing a bunch of licks. It is the melody, but it, but it really stretches. You have the melody, but then you also have something called the counter melody, which is something mm-hmm. that maybe during the golden age, some of them would improvise. They tend to just be like whole notes, half notes, just beautiful, mm-hmm. just lyrical. But they're not really a secondary melody. Um, right. I mean, they, they sort of are, but it's more there's a melody going on underneath, mm-hmm. maybe being played staccato, and then the counter melody is this 
long lyrical thing the violin right like leading tones that are just sort of moving through alongside yeah there's a sort of is there a name for the section of a piece of tango music this is something i've noticed that happens a lot where there's always a build-up right like a a cadence that leads to the next section of the song there's a lot of stretching during those sections it's a very dramatic part of the piece that's where it feels to me like the ensemble is like really working as an organism they're just sort of like da 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 you know like when the mm-hmm, when the mm-hmm, band kind of mm-hmm. builds together yeah. Is that just something that you sort of learn to feel as a group when you're playing I, together? Well, I think it's also based on the different tango orchestras. I mean, if you mm-hmm. know, if you're listening to a lot of the orchestra of Osvaldo Pugliese, you'll hear that a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you listen to Darienzo, like Darienzo never does that. So just to zoom out for a second and underline something that Alex just said, it makes a huge difference which tango orchestra that you're listening to. That first example was Arrival, a piece by Osvaldo Pugliese, the great Osvaldo Pugliese and his orchestra. And you can hear if you listen, there's so much stretching going on, what's called rubato in the music, a lot of stretching, which the dancers will then have to react to. The music kind of sways side to side. It has a real liquidity, a real fluidity to it. Now, that second piece was a piece you're going to hear a little bit more of later, a piece called Felicia by Juan D'Arienzo. He was known as the king of the beat. And if you listen to him, especially the bandoneon playing, it's this really driving marcato, and it's pretty rigid. It's giving you the time very distinctly, at least during this marcato section. So all that goes to show something that we'll talk about a few times during this conversation. It really makes a difference which orchestra you're listening to when it comes to the style and rhythmic interpretation of the music, which is going to have a real impact on you if you're dancing. That's not necessarily something that's unique to Argentine tango music. It's more unique maybe to the particular orchestras, maybe the more dramatic orchestras Mm -hmm. or the more lyrical orchestras that focus their arrangements around the melody rather than being more sort of rhythmic mm-hmm. centric. But know? there does tend to be a trade-off, you know, between short and long. Uh, you know, there's often would be like a, a more staccato rhythmic section followed by one of these more lyrical sections. Right. And, you know, the degree to which, as Alex was saying, different arranging styles emphasize one or the other changes. But there does tend to be that trade-off that I think you know, as a dancer you get used to hearing too and the dancers are used to to feeling these A-bar kind of um, textural changes. So, yeah, there's, the textural changes are really dramatic as well. Well, everything's very dramatic in tango, but <laughs> um, between those, I think, between those things. And there's also that variation at the end where, you know, there's the pandanones play like a fast Bach, Bach sort of sounding thing, mm-hmm. um, which is actually also based on the melody. I, at first I thought it was just sort of random soloing, you know, right, like from my jazz background, but it's, it's also sort of based around the... Yeah, it's like a variation on the original theme. So most have like sonata and trio kind of form. It's like mm-hmm. A, B, A, C, A, more or less. Mm-hmm. And so you have the first A, then the contrasting section B. Like sometimes say the first A section is like, I was in love with her. The B section is she left me. <laughs> <laughs> C section is like, I remember the good old days, right? 
So, so you have A, B, and then when, a, when the second A yeah. comes back, that's usually when the singer comes in, if there's going to be right. a singer. And the singer sings like an A, B, or A, C. And then that last A, you have the variation, which is very um, idiomatic to, to the genre. You'll hear that a lot, that last A, where the bandoneons play these you know, 16th fast, notes. Yeah. Right, variation right, on right. the original theme that, that we hear at the beginning. It, it the sort piece. of signals the end as well. I think yeah. the dancer's like, oh, here's the variation. The okay, finale, now it's going to be yeah. you know, dramatic, and then you slow down a little and it's over. So. Could you guys go, is, would it be possible to go through a piece and kind of demonstrate those different sections? Is yeah. that, yeah. I'm guessing uh -huh. that's probably pretty easy yeah, yeah. to do, right? Uh -huh. Yeah, let's do it. Let's, uh, let's okay, do it. so this is a tango um, called Felicia, and it's one that we play a lot. And so we'll demonstrate in the beginning. It's a very rhythmic song, um, tends to be more instrumental. Structurally, there's an A section, there's a B section, there's a C section. Um, we'll do it like AA, BB, CC, AA, BB, CC, AA in terms, in terms of the form. So this first part sure. here. Uh, That's how the melody goes, right? But then sometimes in tango you have uh, what's called the counter melody, which is a lyrical melody that happens on top. So what you'll hear is on the bandoneon, I'll be playing the chords and the staccato main melody, and Andrew will play a, a, a lyrical counter melody on top at the same time. So something like that, and a lot of times, you know, the violin might have the counter melody, right, right, or the bandoneon, or or the piano, right. These are kind of and that's um, an improvised melody. So that does yeah. give you kind of a chance well, to and, and express in this case yourself. It is, yeah, but, but often they're they're sort of standardized. Right, everyone kind of plays the same. So I, also in the piano, I I like these in the lower register, which I think uh, is, is a nice t a touch that a lot of orchestras will do, like um, three, four. <laughs> Sounds good down there too. Yeah, so that's another right. counter melody. It's, you know, so it can be kind of the below hand. the below the main yeah, melody. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Um, and then so then you go through the B section, the C section, and then at the at the last A you have this thing called the variation. Well, should we play B? The B section. Yeah. yeah let's, let's hear the let's hear each section. Okay. Yeah, so we'll we'll play the C section now of Felicia. Um, I don't know how we'll play it because when Andrew and I play, it's yeah. always going to be a little different. But we'll just play it so that we can get to um, the last A section, which is the variation. In this case, Andrew is just going to make it up on the spot because he's amazing like that. But nice. in a larger ensemble, these these would be written out um, to kind of show the virtuosity uh, of a musician. So two, three, four. Yeah. 
awesome. Okay. Yeah. It's Good amazing. Enough. Beautiful. There's a lot of very cool variations that have been written over the years, and yeah, I'm sure. you can find a recording. Good yeah, no, I'll use that one. So that has a little more dramatic feel. Not, not so mm-hmm. much as maybe the stuff that we were discussing earlier, but uh, there's, there's, there's more breaks in the rhythm. You know, there's some stops and some pauses there. Um, you could probably phrase it more, like um, oftentimes like a, a large half-note triplet uh, is used uh, to, ta- to break up uh, a sort of s- um, more consistent rhythm. Yeah, so in the C section, if you're just reading the melody off the uh, page, it's... So if you just play it as written, it can sound really boring. And so in tango, there's sort of a tango swing that is usually instead of having four eighth notes, you 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 put them, um, you tripletize them. So instead of ra ta 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 ta, you Anytime you're playing legato, you kind of have to do that. You don't play straight eighths. And anytime you're playing staccato, you want to play as straight as possible. You actually don't want to use that swing. So that's a very tango thing. So if you're playing it lyrically, you'd be like. Something like that, right? So it has a little more, a little more tension and release, I guess, with like, I'm not going to play it. Okay, I'll give it to you. And it's mm. kind of teasing <laughs> of, of the rhythm a little bit. Otherwise, it just sounds very like a, like a, like a computer playing it or, or something. You know? Right, right. So um, that's, that's a very tango element. And I guess like tango arrangers, what they'll do is they'll take a song like this, a typical, you know, what's called an orchestra typica or a sort of tango big band from the golden age would have, you know, four strings, like four violins, four bandoneons, bass, piano, and a singer. So the arranger sits down and says, okay, we have this A section. We're going to have, you know, the bandoneons and violins play the melody. We're going to have the bass and piano play, play the rhythm. Um, and then when we come back to A, we're going to give a violin counter melody while the bandoneons still do the, the main melody and the marcato or the rhythm. And then the B section, maybe we have a 2D. The whole orchestra plays the first four bars. And then we go straight to a violin counter melody. And so that's kind of how the arranging works. Are we playing staccato, legato? Who is playing the melody? And then everyone else basically does the supporting rhythm, which is, you know, in Argentine tango, is you have what's called the marcato. So, so you wouldn't do it like that's not tango yeah, at all. Yeah, very short. And then you have these highlight rhythms. So you have the marcato, and then you have uh, the syncopa, right? Which every orchestra interprets a little differently, but the syncopa is a very tango rhythm. You also have the three-three-two, which is sometimes used. Also, uh, you know, you can you can play like a halftime marcato, like which we do a lot in this song, for example, where you just which is like, called the marcato in two. So it's up it's, if you're in four, and then you go to two. You know, so it's a way to sort of slow slow the feel down without actually slowing down. Yeah. So all these are, you know, the the rhythm section. That's pretty structured in Argentine tango. It's kind of like that's what defines the genre. I feel like more than anything else is, mm-hmm. is what the rhythm section is doing and partly instrumentation too. You know, once you start having 
trumpet, heart, and harp and drum set, and you move away from the. It, it doesn't become Argentine tango, really, you know, anymore. So, um. there's a whole. I mean, there's clearly a whole vocabulary for this, but it's kind of an ensemble vocabulary. It's not, you know, I'm thinking as a jazz musician, a lot of vocabulary in jazz is. I mean, there is ensemble vocabulary, but there's also a lot of soloist vocabulary, and you kind of learn these different tricks and techniques for negotiating chord progressions. This is more. Uh, collaborative. It has to be more of a group. How do people? How is this handed on? How is the? How do people learn this vocabulary? Uh, just by listening to recordings. I yeah. feel like it's always been an oral tradition. Right. And there's a, a, a school called La Orquesta Escuela in Buenos Aires, and people are given charts just as a sort of starting point. But then you have these old time musicians working with people, and it's like to to teach all the stuff that. They just play it and you copy and you play and you copy. Mm-hmm. And so you learn some techniques like on violin to do the marcado. You have to play very close to the frog, very close to the bridge and almost get a, a rhythmic. Mm-hmm. It's a little scratchy on the front end. very short sound envelope like when I tell my, my I use classical string players and I say you know play it short like like Stravinsky's staccato it's mm. like even shorter like sh- shorter the better because there's no drums in this so every instrument has to has to give that sense of drive and, and, and rhythm mm-hmm. because we don't have percussion in, in Argentina. Yeah, that, there's a lot of uh, interesting sounds, too, like that each instrument produces. I mean, the bandoneon has its own thing, but yeah, you have a percussive element. But I also think that, like, the the bass, you know, and the violins have to use, like, what would be considered unorthodox classical technique. Right. Same with piano. Like, there's all sorts of sound effects, like um, this thing called the jumbiar, which is sort of, um, was originally meant to sound like a factory But you know, it's specific. Like it's not, it's not louder than the other notes. But it's supposed to be consistent, a consistent growl. And you can do it in different ways. Sometimes it's just a couple notes. You know, you know there's all sorts of glissandos. You know, I had teachers like um, a great pianist from New York called Octavio Brunetti, who passed away about ten years ago. Um, taught me like some really painful but awesome ways to play an extremely fast glissando <laughs> run up and down the piano with the side of your finger you get a finger gets all chewed up but you know there's there's lots of different ways and even just the shortness of the notes like uh can't i guess be over emphasized from the piano perspective too so yeah. and octavio learned all of them from recording so if you're like well do the marcato like the orchestra of tanturi did he could mm-hmm. do that mm-hmm. now do it like disarly he would mm-hmm. do that mm-hmm. do like pugliese so he, yeah, was, he was the best just methodical from mm. just putting on the recording and really trying to copy what's going on. I feel like like when I hired Andrew, Andrew had transcribed a bunch of stuff for me already, so that was an advantage because he knew really what was going on. You know, a lot of times you hear it and you kind of guess more or less what's happening, but to do sort of a, a deep dive into the music and get into the nuances, the timing nuances of what's going on, because it's almost like, even in modern tango bands in Argentina, it's like they care more about timing than like intonation. Mm-hmm. Frequently, you'll have out of tune <laughs> violins, but man, their rhythm is yeah. is yeah, unreal, sure. and the sense of ensemble rhythm where it's, you know you might slow down a beat per minute or two or, or speed up, and and when to do that and where as a group is is not easy to do. But yeah, sometimes the the intonation is like 
wow yeah you put that on cd <laughs> yeah. maybe, maybe it's just adding to the vibe i don't know but yeah but they care a lot about like timing is is yeah. is crucial you know subtle timing i mean there's definitely a rubato element you know that like, maybe this is not a good song to demonstrate but there's you know that where, where there'll be a slight moment when everyone kind of relaxes the, the feel together or but you know like very minutely and it's a great effect when it works but you have that the right people So, Alex, the instrument that you're playing, the bandoneon, can you just tell listeners a little bit about it? Yeah, it was invented in the 1800s by Heinrich Bandt, and it was used to play church organ music. It was a portable way to play church organ music, if you think like Bach or or something like that. (laughs) Uh, And then the joke goes, it went from the churches in Germany to the brothels in Buenos Aires. (laughs) And uh, it wasn't the first tango instrument in Buenos Aires. Uh, The first kind of tango instrument was guitar and flute, sure. and later violin was introduced, and, and the bandoneon really established itself, I guess, in the 19-teens and 1920s. Um, and now it's kind of synonymous with sort of tango. It's got a little... Uh, so it's like an accordion, but it has a different metal for the reed plates, so it has a kind of darker sound than an accordion does. The left hand plays kind of the bass notes, right? Uh, and the right hand plays more the treble can go really high. This is the highest note. This is the lowest note. So it has a pretty large range. Beautiful low notes on um, that Yeah. So um, it's different than an accordion, too, because each button plays an individual note. So if you make a chord, you have to actually play, you know, that number. Um, mm-hmm. So maybe it's more like a concertina in that sense. And the unusual thing about it is that there's no rhyme or reason to the layout of the keyboard. So... You know, the right hand of the keyboard, if you play a C scale, I know you can't see it, but but the notes are not right next to each other like no. it would be on a piano or a guitar yeah. or really any other instrument. The left hand, the buttons, 30-some-odd buttons, are completely, the pattern is completely different than the right. And the notes change whether you're pulling the bellows or whether you're you're pushing the bellows. So some notes may be the same. Here I'm pulling the bellows, and now I'm pushing... Some change by a little bit. Here's pulling. Same button pushing, right? And then some change by a lot. Pulling, pushing, right? So you have an octave, you have a half step, and you have unison. So if you form a chord pulling and you don't move your fingers and you just push the bellows, that's what you get. So you can't just play pirate-style kind of opening and closing and expect it to sound good. You really have to memorize four completely random odd keyboard layouts the instruments are old so they break frequently so you always have to bring a second bandoneon to a gig in case you're playing and one note keeps sounding oh, yeah. we had that happen once we had that happen oh. KMHD on the re- live once. on air yeah <laughs> oh, it's man. Like, what song do we know that <laughs> is in b is in b because <laughs> <laughs> that note won't stop playing that's funny um yeah how long have you been playing it um it's about 2001 i think is when i got it and uh I mean, I'm a, I'm a dance teacher. That's, that's what I do. That's my day job, so to speak. Um, so the bandoneon was just a very side thing for me. I, uh, I have a degree in music. I play saxophone. I played violin as a kid. So, so fortunately, I didn't have to learn music on top of learning the bandoneon. But it's definitely um, takes some effort for people to, mm-hmm. you know, if anyone's interested mm-hmm. in learning the bandoneon, you definitely... Either you do it or you don't. Yeah, I would it's not imagine kind that. Of instrument. <laughs> that was going to be my question: is what instruments you started on? Because you're playing two single note instruments, and you have to learn not just 
a, a multiphonic instrument, but one that doesn't appear to adhere to rhyme or reason. Mm, yeah, yeah, how did yeah. how did this happen? How did it evolve to to have fingerings like this? Um, I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. Some of the inner <laughs> keys, just a mystery. Um, like the inner eight keys, kind of make a little bit of sense. So it's almost like it started as a really small instrument, and maybe they just slowly added on keys mm-hmm. as they wanted to extend the range, but didn't really think way ahead in terms of their organization. Yeah, yeah. It was like, right. let's drill a hole and put a, put a new note here, right? right? And then over time, it was like, wow, you got like 37 buttons, I, I think, on each yeah. side. And it's just like, it's total nightmare. It's funny because yeah. it's like, well, people will figure it out. And then people did figure it mm-hmm. out. Yeah. You sound great. So, yeah, you, know? <laughs> you do. It just makes the entrance to, I mean, we don't have a lot of band O'Neill players. And I think part of it is because of the wonky keyboard mm-hmm. layout. Sure. Um, it's sort of like, who would want to do that to themselves? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about dance. You're also a dance instructor, and the dance is such an essential part of tango music, or at least in my understanding of it, though I gather there are sort of two different ways of mm-hmm. thinking about that. Yeah, so I mean, in tango, you can be, you know, you can be a tango visual artist, you can be a painter, you can be a poet, you can be a musician, you can be a dancer. So we think of tango as sort of this, this, this genre that includes a lot of different forms. Um, I mean, I fell in love with the music first, um, and then fell in love with the dance, and was intrigued by course the steps and the the improvisatory nature so you have this kind of structure of things you can do but you don't really have set patterns of like eight steps that you do this eight steps and then you do the next you know at any moment you can pivot and change what you're doing and you know cut one sequence in half and recombine it with something else so that that was kind of neat and then the connection this idea of like connecting with someone else while you're dancing like i didn't realize that was a thing uh and it's really meaningful, like like if you have coffee with someone and you just socialize with them, that's like another way to connect. But through the dance, it's sort of this nonverbal way of kinesthetically connecting with someone, which was super cool. And then that's all, I mean, that's all I wanted to do was dance and then teaching kind of happened and that just made dancing happen more. And then I got the studio and learned bandoneon and <laughs> I've taught, you know, all over the U.S. and Europe and nine trips to Buenos Aires. So tango's kind of consumed my life for the last 25, 27 years. What, how would you define tango, given that it's a cross-disciplinary term? What, what does tango mean to you? Um, it's the million-dollar question, Kirk. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think... I don't know. I guess for me, I there's a lot of honesty in it, um, in the sense that you know the music is is about is really you know beautifully worded in terms of the poetry of you know centers around like nostalgia and loss, but also beauty and sort of all the things that you know I could relate to, and they're so beautifully written. Um, and then honesty in the dance. You know, when you when you're dancing with someone, you know truly what they're thinking, what they feel. You can't really hide. You, you can hide with words, but you can't really hide through through how you move. How You you know, if you're shy, you're going to stand a certain way. And if you're arrogant, you're going to stand and speak in a certain way. And, and, and through the dance, you really, you get to know someone on an honest level. So there's a lot of um, honesty in that. Also getting to learn about yourself. Like I think through the dance, we really discover things about ourselves. And just in the last 
I don't know, 15 years or so, there's this whole movement of somatic psychotherapy and, and a, a lot of um, people that, that are, like this one professor at UC Berkeley said like tango is basically somatic psychotherapy at its highest level. So there's people, you know, and I've seen it too through being around it long enough where people go through transformations, you know. Um, like for me, I was kind of more introverted and tango allowed me to, to, to find my extroverted self, I guess, while still maintaining some introverted tendencies. It taught me how to set, set boundaries, set like walls. Um, cause I'm very, I'm a, I think I'm an empathetic person and a kind of conflict adverse person. And so tango showed me through continually interacting with people in the community that that was a thing that was part of me and also how to, how to cope or deal with that in a way that was good for me. So I think tango is, tango has a lot more meaning um, once you get into it than I think people think on the surface. You tell people about tango and they think rose in the mouth, promenade or mm-hmm. <laughs> scent of a woman, right? You know, these, you know it's, it's sort of, it's almost kind of a dramatic cliche or caricature, you know, which when you really get into it and do it, you discover it's not, it's more like doing, doing yoga or meditating really than, than some sort of comical dips and fishnet stockings and whatever. I mean, that's that, uh, you know, I heard the story that the conservative media in Buenos Aires wanted to get rid of tango. So they painted it sort of as a dance of pimps and whores and, and, and that just intrigued people even more about it and <laughs> how they really wanted to do it. Right. So, um, I think that cliche still stands in our minds, you know, whether it's through Hollywood or through dance, you know, watching these shows, mm-hmm. dancing with the stars mm-hmm. or whatever, people have a, um, understandably confused notion of really what Argentine tango is um, in the dance and the music and, and everything. So now's the part where I get to talk a little bit about the tango class that I took at Tango Baratine, because after I interviewed Alex and Andrew, Alex said, you know, this Saturday we're having a melonga, also known as a social dance at Tango Baratine. You should come by. We do a beginner course at the beginning of the night, and then people will just be hanging out and dancing. You get a feel for the dance. And I thought, well, you know, I'm making an episode about tango. I should probably go do some tango dancing since I'm working on it. So my partner Emily and I met up with Andrew and his wife, Steph. We went over to Tango Baratine and we did some tango dancing. It was an interesting scene. We're at an interesting point in the pandemic. Definitely a lot of people in masks dancing, which sort of changes some of the social cues you have to read when you're tango dancing. But everybody was very game. I mean, everyone shows up to a melanga or to a tango dance class being very open and ready to dance with all kinds of people. So there's a really friendly vibe off the top, at least at this tango studio. But I would imagine that in general, Tango communities are pretty cool. So I will say, watching two people dance a tango together, you could be forgiven for thinking that it looks pretty easy. Because the tango, it's improvised. You and your partner, one of you leads, one of you follows, and you kind of just move wherever the leader wants to go. So it doesn't really follow a set, you know, you do eight this way and eight that way and then do a turn. It's nowhere near as rigid as ballroom styles. It's a much more fluid thing. It's almost a conversation that you have with your dance partner. (laughs) 
So there's a structure to the dance, and there's structure to the music, and there's also a sort of social structure to the milanga. As it turns out, you're not supposed to just show up with a partner and then dance with that partner for the entire night. There's a whole built-in social structure where you dance with one partner for one group of songs called a tanda, and then during an interstitial period, you have to just look around the dance floor and find somebody new to dance with. And that sounds kind of terrifying in the abstract, like, oh my god, what if nobody will pick me and I'm just all alone? But generally speaking, people show up to these things ready to dance with other people, and it's all part of it. So it's actually it's actually nice because there's a structure built around that, and it's an expectation. So you know you're going to be dancing with more than one person, and that winds up making it really fun. So the experience of going to a milonga, at least for me, was sort of like having a series of short, nonverbal conversations with people where we just moved around the floor together, experimented and sort of found the beat as we went, and then eventually the tanda ended, and it was time to find somebody new. So you might think, oh, well, you're kind of free to do whatever you want. That doesn't look that hard. And honestly, when you're watching two people dance together, it kind of just looks like they're walking around the floor together. It doesn't look that difficult. But once you're with a partner and the music is playing, it's actually a really interesting challenge. You have to connect with the music in a way that, especially as an instrumental musician, I kind of struggled with, and it was a fascinating struggle. I wound up having to ask Alex to demonstrate just how do you even reset the beat if you get your feet in the wrong place from how you want them, and you just do it. You kind of confidently just pause and reset, because if you're leading especially, you can kind of just do whatever you want. So I just thought that was really cool. I had to kind of rewire my musical brain to adjust to the amount of freedom that I had and then embrace that freedom and, you know, kind of allow myself to do the dance moves that I wanted to do. And by the end of the introductory class, Emily and I were able to basically walk in a circle around the room successfully, which felt like a major accomplishment, even though, of course, when I watch really good tango dancers, there's all these other moves. There's a whole dance vocabulary that Alex will tell us a little bit about more in a moment, that once you've mastered that, it's this beautiful dance that just flows like water. A really, really cool thing to watch. But just walking around the dance floor, well, that felt like enough of an accomplishment to us. All right, let's get back to Andrew and Alex. Just wanted to share my story of the very beginnings of my relationship with tango and being an actual tango dancer. Who knows? By this time next year, maybe I'll be a little bit better at it. How does the dance work mechanically? Could you kind of talk through the improvisational nature of the yeah, dance? Yeah, so I guess kind works? of, you know, similar to jazz, there are, there are sort of rules. You, you both stand up straight. Um, we stand on always on one foot or the other. You can take a forward step, back step, side step. And when you're on one foot, you can pivot one way or the other. So that's the basic underlying structure. You lead each step. So as a leader, if I go to the side with my left, my follower is following me, goes to the side with her right. It can be a big step or a small step. A lot like in music, it can be a loud note or a soft note. It can be faster or slower. So tango doesn't say, like, you have to take this size of step at this speed. It allows for these dynamic and articulation variations of movement, essentially, if we're using music as an analogy uh, in dance. Uh, and then when the follower's on one foot or the other, the leader can, can pivot them one way or the other. And, you know, a forward step plus a pivot gives you a step called a front ocho. So we have sort of 12 things that we do. We have walking, we have ochos, we have molinetes. That's kind of the main course. And then we have dessert items, baleos, 
ganchos, paradas, barritas, volcadas, colgadas. So there's 12 things that we do. But how we order those 12 things uh, is infinite over three minutes, you know, and it's always different with dif- different music, different partner, you know, so it's, it's, it's always a new experience. Nice. Yeah. How do you see the relationship between the band, between the instrumental music and the dancers? Um, I mean, it's great to be able to do both, to to be a dancer and try to make dance music. Because it's, it's like the million-dollar question, right? Like, what, what makes music danceable? Right. Like, you could have a steady rhythm, but that doesn't... That would make it easy to step in time, but it doesn't necessarily make it enjoyable to to listen to when you're dancing, right? Or to be able to dance to. So it's been intriguing for me to be a musician and try to continually try to answer that question. Like, how can this be more danceable, more danceable, more danceable, right? I'm not really interested so much in making tango music for listening. There's a lot of that out there and it's beautiful and I listen to it. But as a dancer myself, like I'm really interested in and dance music. Yeah. Well, we have a super fun time every time we play for dancers. I mean, playing for dancers is like not like playing for an audience, you know. Right. And so you get a lot as a music. Oh, I find anyway with this band that I, you know, I feel like I get a lot back from the energy from the dancers from playing for dancers. And it applies to playing swing music for dancers too, but much more in tango because they're much more focused on the nuances of the music. And whereas in in swing, they're they are to some degree, but you know, sort of more focused on the beat. But you know, I feel like the energy um, gives you something that maybe something you wouldn't want to play at a concert because you'd think, oh, I'm getting a little bored playing this right now. But when you're doing it in a dance, you get something else, a, a nice feeling from it that you don't get when you're just playing it for a concert, and, and that keeps it interesting to play, you know, even if it's something, like I said, that you wouldn't necessarily play in a club or Yeah, and, some, and sometimes we'll have a really good connection with, with the dance floor, and, and we might take the tempo way down, which is all, never done in the recordings, but just <laughs> to kind of be a little bit mischievous. Yeah. You know, and people know me here. It's my yeah, space, yeah. and so we'll, we'll bring the tempo way down, and, you know, people kind of laugh, and then we... So, so it's, a nice, yeah. it's, it's nice that it can be living and evolving and subtly changing like that, you know, but you wouldn't just do that randomly wherever mm-hmm. you went at a dance, mm-hmm. you know, if you're playing at a festival or something, you don't know your crowd, you kind of got to, you got to win them over first before you can start doing this. But, but, but that's also a nice connection to, uh, you know, as Andrew was saying, it's not like we're up on a stage and we're really far removed from like, we're literally on the, you know, we're two feet away from the dancers right there. And uh, it's, there's, there's a nice dynamic, you yeah. know, between that. Yeah, and there's nothing like that moment when, like, you get to the end of the song and everyone stops, you know, the whole room is packed with dancers and you stop and they all stop at the same time. If you've done a good job and you've sent the right signals through the music, then they know that's coming to the end. Uh, it's a great feeling. Yeah. So I always ask guests to recommend music for people to listen to, and I have a feeling that people listening to this episode are going to have, they're really going to want to go and listen to some tango. So I know that the two of you have some recommendations to make, so let me me have them. Yeah, so um, we organize, at least in the tango dance world, we organize um, things musically by the name of the orchestra leader. So we have what are called the big four, which were the four biggest, most popular dance bands during the golden age which is again about 1936 to 1954 the first one is osvaldo pugliese p-u-g-l-i-e-s-e um there's a big shrine in my studio dedicated to <laughs> yeah i'm looking at to, it to over there, yeah. um anyways you can put his name into spotify or youtube anything by pugliese is 
is still considered danceable, but it but it has all that sort of dramatic sound. It's super beautiful musically, especially the stuff from the the fifties is a little higher fidelity recording, so it's a little bit easier to hear all the instruments. Um, the other three are Carlos Di Sarli, D I S A R L I, um, very danceable orchestra. Um, Juan Darienzo, his last name is D apostrophe A R I E. N-Z-O. He was called uh, El Rey de Compas, the king of the beat. Uh, sort of simpler musically, but uh, very, very danceable. That's as a DJ, you put that on to bring people onto the dance floor. And then the last one was a very famous bandoneon player by the name of Anibal Troilo, T-R-O-I-L-O. Also just great. He had a lot of great tango compositions and arrangements and and singers and and so though you know if you're interested in argentine tango dance music specifically those four orchestras are the ones that you want to listen to outside of that if if you want one for listening uh astor piazzola p-i-a-z-z-o-l-l-a uh, you can put that in and i think astor piazzola has a lot of the tango feeling in his compositions and, and arrangements but again you won't hear piazzola at the milongas or the social dances nice <laughs> uh, I don't know if I have anything to add. But kind of covers it. Um, you know, before the golden age was the um, Guardia Vieja, the old school of tango music, which um, was uh, in the teens and twenties. Uh, so there's a lot of interesting music from that period. It's, it tends to be slower, not so much played at dances, but it can be interesting to listen to historically. Di Sarli actually was around during that period, uh, but um, Francisco Canaro was the main orchestra leader. Uh, like the most famous, you know, of the pre-Golden Age uh, and continued even in the Golden Age. So that that's some older stuff if you want to hear uh, where, where this all kind of came from. Um, the pianist Horacio Salgan, S-A-L-G-A-N, was a real incredible piano virtuoso. He did have some dance music, but it's kind of more listening music, but, um, but from a much more strong, jazzy and kind of... Um, consistent rhythmic feel uh, than a lot of the later period uh, stuff like Piazzolla and uh, he has a lot of amazing recordings with an orchestra he has uh, recorded a great deal he recorded with a, a guitarist called um, Ubaldo De Leo so Salgan and D-E space L-I-O if you google that there's tons of great duets to listen to and they're really beautiful and uh, very exciting as well some great fast milongas in there um, and there's a great dance orchestra that's currently in Argentina that we like to listen to called Orchestra Tipica Misteriosa um, and they play great modern dance music and a lot of original compositions um, yeah, they play in kind of the style of Carlos Di Sarli yeah. um, but you know, I'll, I'll play the recorded stuff here at, at the dances. I, I think they're fantastic. So those are just a few other random things to listen to. Um, yeah, I could go on for a long time. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> nice. No, that's that's a, definitely a good listening list for me. Well, this has been great. Thanks to both of you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks so much yeah, for having for us.
that'll do it for this deep dive into the world of tango music. Thank you so much to Alex Krebs and Andrew Oliver for coming on the show. That was a whole lot of fun. I learned a lot while making this episode and really just gained a whole new appreciation for tango music. If you would like to listen to some of the artists featured on this episode, and if there are artists that you maybe weren't familiar with before you heard Andrew and Alex talking about them, I've made a playlist of tango music of all of the music that was included on this episode. You can find a link for that down in the show notes. And yeah, it's a whole wide world of tango music. There's so much to discover, so much more than we were able to cover on this episode. So I hope that if you're into the music, you'll just go and start to explore and see what you find. Thank you all so much, as always, for listening to Strong Songs. A huge thank you to all of Strong Songs' patrons. You all make this kind of thing possible. You make it possible for me to put the amount of time and energy into this show that episodes like this one require. Just doing research, going and taking dance classes. It was all a whole lot of fun, but it really does take a lot of work. And I appreciate that so many of you support me in doing that work so I can keep on making this show for all of you. Patreon.com slash Strong Songs. That's where you want to sign up. You'll even get bonus mini-sodes if you sign up at the quarter note tier or higher. There's also a PayPal link, a store link for merch, all kinds of stuff down in the show notes for various ways you can support the show. And of course, you can also just spread the word, tell people about Strong Songs. That's the way the show spreads, is through word of mouth. Thanks so much to everyone who's told a friend about the show, or otherwise helped it get around. This episode's outro soloist is the great Portland trombonist Kyle Molitor on the trombone. Felt like featuring an instrument that doesn't get to play very much tango. So stick around for Kyle, and I'll be back in two weeks with more Strong Songs. Strong Songs.